0: The entirety of the chapter, uh, 22 verses, and the first verse uh, begins, if you picked up an ESV on the way in, on page 41. Before we go to the Lord and hear His Word, let us go to Him again in prayer. Please pray with me. O Lord, our God, giver of all good gifts, you who bestow wisdom upon those who ask of you and you do so unbegrudgingly. Or today we ask that you would give us wisdom according to your word, according to this life-giving word, this living word, uh, that uh, you would rip us open by its double edges so that you may bind us back together by your Holy Spirit, now expose to us the needs of our hearts and how you fill all of them to the full in Jesus Christ through your blessing through him. Help us to see and to worship today as we come to your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it, Genesis chapter 48, uh, verses 1 through 22. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful, and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in the land of Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, "Who are these?" Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now, the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. And Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head, And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus, he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you, he will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Well, thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Maybe it's just me, but when you read through Genesis chapter 48, it reads like a story that we might have heard somewhere else before. Here is a picture of an aging patriarch in God's chosen family, and his body is frail and his eyes are dim and his family gathers near him. And he reaches out feeble hands that shake with age until they come to rest on the heads of Younger men, and he pronounces a blessing. He invokes the God of Abraham, and the younger brother receives the greater blessing. There's something familiar here. It's the scene from uh, Israel's own life, from his youth, now rep- replaying in his old age. This chapter also gives you deja vu, it's because you've read something like this before. It's probably also because you've experienced something like this before, not in the same details. You know what it is to get a phone call, like the call that Joseph got. Now's the time. You know what it is to gather a family by a bedside. You know what it is to hear and to say parting words and to kiss and to embrace and to say goodbye. Even the grandchildren in this room know what it is to sit in a waiting room next to cousins that you only see once in a while. There's that awkward silence as you try to think of something to say. You've been in that experience. We we know what this feels like in some sense, in some detail. Not only have we read portions of this story, but we've experienced portions of this story. We know what it is to be where Joseph is in this chapter. And it is a reminder that at some point we will all be where Jacob is in this chapter. Not just beside the bed, but on it. And perhaps when the time comes for you, uh, your goodbye uh, will will give you the opportunity, as, as Jacob did, as Israel did, to embrace and to bless and to invoke and to pray and to speak to your children, but maybe not. Maybe your goodbye will come unexpectedly. Or maybe it'll come as it comes, it seems, for so many, after a very long, Very slow silence. But as long as the Lord tarries, we will all come to the place that Jacob is one way or another. To the place where our loved ones will begin only to be able to remember us and not to be with us anymore. They'll remember the things that we've said and the things that we've done, the things that were important to us while we lived. I'm not the kind of preacher that gets up in arms about sermon titles. Uh, some pastors do. They, they need to make sure that they're uh, spot on and, uh, and tell you a lot about what's going on. I pick mine uh, months sometimes in advance whenever I'm breaking down the book into, into chunks to preach. And, and that's what happened with this, and they very rarely change after I've uh, picked a sermon title. And uh, if I were to rename this sermon, or if I were to give it a, a subtitle, I would probably name it something like how to leave a legacy. That's what's happening in this passage. Jacob is passing on a legacy to his children. And interestingly enough, of all the accounts that we have of Jacob's life, and his life, by the way, takes up about half of the book of Genesis, about 25 chapters, more than really any other character in the book, more than Adam, more than Abraham, more than his father Isaac. Jacob is everywhere through this book. Of all of his 25 chapters of life that we can read about him, the New Testament singles out chapter 48 as the most important event of his entire life. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. It boils his 25-chapter life down to a single verse. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. That's it. Jacob's legacy summarized in a single verse. Jacob the schemer. Jacob the twister, the wrestler. Jacob the, the grieving father. Jacob the melancholy, it seems. And yet, here is his legacy that he worshiped the Lord, and he passed on a blessing to a generation that came after him. Would that that would be your legacy. Maybe a legacy that you leave to your children, or to your nieces and your nephews, or merely, uh, maybe just to those who are in your Sunday school class, or the, the kids down the block, or somebody, some generation after you. Would that they would say of you, you know what, she worshiped the Lord, and she passed on a blessing to a generation that came after her. I think this is one of the questions that this chapter presses in on us, and maybe at this point you feel like you're too young to think about what your legacy will be. Maybe you're so old that that that's practically all you think about, but this is what this chapter puts before us. What will others say about you? And Will it merely be just about you, or will your legacy be something godly, something that pushes them in the direction to consider? the God you love and serve and follow in this life, the God who is your shepherd. So I want to use Jacob as our guide today and, and think about what it means to leave a godly legacy or to pass on a blessing to, a next, uh, to the next generation. I think we see three things. You might be able to find more, uh, but three is enough for me. And, and so uh, how can we say we can leave a legacy? One, well, like Jacob, we ought to speak of God's mercy. How we leave a godly legacy, that we speak of God's mercy. Now, I want to draw your attention to verses 3 and 4, where Jacob does exactly that, where he speaks of God's mercy to him. But before you look there, we need to take a big step backward. Before we can understand what exactly he's saying, we need to understand what is happening in these verses. In this first major section, really the first 12 verses, almost half of this chapter, there is one thing. Happening, and it's all of a piece, and it is uh, really on a single on, on some level, it's very mundane. Uh, Israel is doing a little bit of estate planning. It's the sort of thing that we all uh, know we should do, but nobody wants to do. But at some point, you go to your lawyer, you hop onto LegalZoom.com, you make out a will, you make sure that whatever is left after you are gone gets divided appropriately. All of your assets and your accounts, and if you have anything else, make sure that it goes to the right people in the right uh, sizes and the right proportions. Now, you might be aware uh, that in the ancient Near East, uh, estate planning was normally pretty simple. It worked on a share system. And it worked according to the number of sons that you had. If you had no sons, it worked according to the number of daughters. If you had no daughters, it worked according to the numbers of brothers, or the the number of somebody, but it worked according to a share system. And when you divided your estate, it was always divided into one share more than the number you were accounting for. So if you had seven sons, you would split the pie into eight pieces. It was always that the eldest son would get two pieces and everybody else would get one. This is what the Bible speaks of according to the, the double portion. The firstborn would receive twice as much as everyone else. And they they all might be one seventh in, in all those things, but the firstborn would receive two sevenths, or two eighths, really, a quarter. You can do the math, and it's it's really pretty simple. And normally it would be very simple. So for Israel, in his sense, it would be twelve sons, that means 13 shares, and all the brothers would receive one share except for Reuben, he would get two. He would get the double portion, and it's pretty simple. But there's a problem in Israel's family, and the problem is that Reuben was not worthy of the extra share that was supposed to be his. Reuben had forfeited his double inheritance. We've read and we've spoken about it before. It happened back in Genesis chapter 35 when Reuben took to himself his father's concubine. And he slept with his father's wife, Bilhah, and he did this disgusting act, but you can go back and and read it. What was actually happening there is that Reuben was making a power grab for the family. It was a mutiny of sorts. He was saying, I'm really the one who ought to be in charge of this family, and I'll prove it by taking the reins of leadership, and I'll take our father's wife. You see the same thing happening with, uh, with David's son, Absalom, when he tries to take over the kingdom. He asserts his power and authority by taking to himself all of his father's concubines. It was the same sort of thing. It was a power grab. And by doing this thing, Reuben, in a sense, disinherited himself. He's still counted as one of the sons, but he loses his worthiness to be called the firstborn, to be the leader of the family. And someone else will have to take Reuben's place. Someone else will have to get the double portion. And that someone else is Joseph. This is what we see between verses 3 and 12. Israel is replacing Reuben as the firstborn by taking Joseph as the firstborn of the family. And his double portion is taken from him, and it's it's given to Joseph, but it's given to him through his sons. Take a look at verse 5. And now your two sons, Israel speaking to Joseph, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben And Simeon are. And so what follows is an adoption ceremony. He takes these two boys and they will become his sons, not Joseph's sons any longer. They will be named according to the tribes of Israel. And so when they settle the promised land, there is no tribal allotment for Joseph. Instead, there are two tribal allotments. There's one for Ephraim, and there's one for Manasseh. And the double portion is given to Joseph because Reuben was not worthy of it. Now, it seems, in some sense, that we might be reading a little bit into what's happening here, but this is very explicit when you turn to First Chronicles chapter 5. It begins to list the sons of Israel, and it says this, Reuben was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. And though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So what do we see happening in this first section? It's an adoption ceremony. Two sons being brought in to replace Reuben. And Jacob's doing a little bit of estate planning. Now that helps us to understand some of the details of the text. Some of these things later, like when the two boys come and and Israel says, who are these? Well, yes, his eyes are dim, but that's part of the ceremony. It's like the beginning of a wedding ceremony, and the pastor stands there, and the bride comes down, and he says, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And it's just part of the ceremony, and it's passing from one life into another life, and it's part of what's happening here. Who are these? And they're mine, the ones the Lord has given to me, and he says, bring them. And then this really sort of awkward picture where Joseph brings his two sons, and he presents them to his father, and we find out later that apparently they're on his knees. These are not little children. When you do the math, you realize that they have been together in Egypt for 17 years, and these boys were born before the famine and before uh, they came down, and so they're, what, 19, 20, 22? They're these 22-year-old men sitting on the knees of their 147-year-old grandfather as he kisses them and embraces them, and he say that's kind of strange, but it's part of the ceremony. That's what we're doing. This this is a formal thing happening here. We need to understand what's happening as we go through all this. It's about adoption and it's about birthrights. It's about inheritance and all of these things. And we might get cynical and say, well, so what? (laughs) Here we are. The pastor just said we're going to be talking about God's mercy and instead we're talking about ancient Near Eastern customs of inheritance right. And your eyes are glazing over and it's a little stuffy in here and you might be falling asleep. And who cares Who the firstborn is and who cares about all of these things? What does this have to do with mercy or with God? What does inheritance have to do with anything? But if you are Israel, inheritance has to do with everything. The question of who gets what after you die is a big deal for these Old Testament patriarchs. And land and inheritance and birthrights and adoption and estate planning have to do with everything because they're all a reminder that God is not finished with his family yet. Mundane details on one level, but something that speaks volumes. If you were to turn, we won't do it, turn in your mind in a sense to the New Testament book, the Gospel of John, into the 13th chapter, and you, I bet, already know what's there. It's that familiar story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, this beautiful, symbolic picture, and he's preparing them for the time that he will leave, and he's giving them a picture of his sacrifice and how much he loves them. The entire chapter is couched in language of Jesus' love for his disciples, and he kneels down and he goes from man to man, and he wipes the grime from between their toes, and not a single one of them understands what is going on. This beautiful, symbolic picture, and he comes to Peter, and first Peter tries to get out of it, and then he tries to get a bath, and he has no idea what's going on. And it's not until it's all over that Jesus resumes his place. He goes back to the head of the table, and he says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right because I am, but if I, your teacher and your Lord, have stooped down and have washed your feet, it's because I'm giving you an example that you should do for one another. I'm doing this to show you what life ought to be like, what you ought to do for one another, and how you ought to love one another. I'm showing you how I love you, and it comes in mundane details like foot washing. And we say, what does foot washing have to do with anything? It has to do with a whole lot, doesn't it? And we might say, what does estate planning have to do with anything? You see, Israel is teaching his children that the God of mercy keeps his promise. You might imagine the passage out of order, the way that we have taken it and looked at it today, that the first things are last and the last things are first. And the adoption ceremony proceeds without this interpretation at the beginning. And these 22-year-old men sit on the knees of their grandfather and he kisses and embraces and he he blesses and he cares for them. And they're sitting there puzzled. And maybe Israel says to them, do you understand what I've done for you? And here's the interpretation. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and blessed me. And he said, Behold, I will make you fruitful and will multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And this is what he's preparing them for. This is what he's calling them to consider. God's mercy. To take him and his fathers before him. The wandering Aramaean Abraham from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans where he was there and his fathers were worshiping idols and he was to call him out and to give this covenantal promise to his father and to his grandfather and on down through the line and he's preparing them for mercy, he's preparing them to see that God is going to keep his promise. And they might be 200 miles and 400 years away from the fulfillment of these things, but he draws them to himself and he says, it's important that I adopt you, that nothing should be left out, that someone should get the double inheritance, because nothing of all that the Lord has promised will be left out. There will be enough for everyone and even the double inheritance. Everything to the fullest, to the last detail, is a picture of what the Lord will do to give his mercy, and this is his legacy to his children, to his grandchildren. Don't think for a minute that God will not be true to his mercy. That's how he leaves his legacy. He speaks and he assures his children of the mercy of God, even in the mundane details of life planning. I think it's worth asking. Will those who come after you see the same thing in the small mundane details of your life? And your children or your grandchildren or or whoever it is that comes after you thinks back and realizes the way that you stayed in a marriage that was difficult and you fought for reconciliation. Even when everyone else said, you know, you you ought to just leave. You ought to get out. It's not worth it. And yet you stayed. And, And for what? And they think about small things like the fact that you took a job where you'd actually make less money and your uh, opportunities for advancement would be lower and, uh, and less full and, and you wouldn't go as far, but you had things to take care of at home and you wanted to, to show that, that the Lord was enough for you even if you didn't have those opportunities and you wanted to teach your children that and so you were there for them and you shepherded them and, and who will care about this? when they come after, when people look and they wonder why you gave your money the way you did or why you spent your time the way you did, why you listened the way you did or prayed the way you did, when they think of all these puzzling things and they wonder, what does any of that have to do with anything? Well, there have been a clear enough interpretation from your lips that all the mundane details of your life have been seeking after a faithful response for the mercy the Lord has shown to you. Will they know that this is your legacy, not that you could achieve and you could do, but there was a God who called you to himself because he was more than sufficient for you. You could move in the direction of unpopular choices or hard choices or, or simply boring choices because he was walking with you. Is that the legacy that others will see? Will you speak of God's mercy? Secondly, the way that we leave a godly legacy is that we pray for God's blessing. Now, in many ways, uh, verses 15 and 16 are really the focus of this whole chapter. It's this moment of, of intercession, and, and if you've got an ESV, it's, it's sectioned off so that it looks like poetry. It's line upon line. It's, it's this moment where uh, Jacob, uh, Israel, uh, and it's interesting the way the names change. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, Israel uh, lays his hands, and he crosses them, and he's very intentional, and he is... He is not doing uh, what happened when he was young. There was no cunning. There is no deceit. And his son tries to uncross his hands. And he says, no, I know. I know what's going on. And yet he's doing something very important. He's praying for God to bless these young men. And and this is the focus of this chapter. He has brought them into his family to be his own children, his own descendants, his own sons. And now he is praying that the Lord would keep them. But within that little section... The part that's portioned off is is poetry. The focus of that section is this little phrase. You you can probably see it right in the middle at the end of the first line of verse 16, bless the boys. Now, if parallelism is your thing, if if this is what gives you the warm and fuzzies, you can go home later and you can figure out that this actually is the center point, that there is this triple invocation at the beginning of God in, in different ways and there's really a triple prayer even though it only shows up in two lines. At the end, and right in the middle, right where Hebrew poetry loves to put the most important thing, is the odd man out. Bless the boys. It's a prayer for blessing. And you can go back and you can find that if you want to do that. But we might have a hard time thinking why this wonderful, momentous thing. And Hebrews chapter 11 says this is the shining moment of, of Israel's life. And can he think of something better to pray? Isn't that sometimes what happens when we're praying for others and we don't know anything else specific, Lord bless them? And it almost feels like a cop-out. I should be able to come up with something better than bless them, shouldn't I? And that's because if that's the way that we think about these three little words, that's because this idea of blessing has really been undervalued in our culture. Sometimes even has been undervalued in our culture. Uh, in our churches and in our prayers, that we think that, oh, Lord, bless this person isn't a very important prayer. But in the Bible, uh, the idea of God's blessing on someone is a very big deal. It is a huge deal. It is is almost the entire deal. You know that it's so important because in the Bible, blessing has an opposite, an equal and opposite reaction to the action of blessing. There is an antonym. Anybody know what the antonym in, in Scripture is to blessing? Curse, not blessing and sadness, not blessing and financial loss, not blessing and frustration, blessing and cursing. The two ends of the spectrum, the opposite and equal reaction to blessing of the Lord. Think about Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scorners. That man is blessed. What will happen to him? He'll be firm, he'll be established before the Lord, he'll be watered of the Lord, he will produce fruit in its season, things will go well, not just with him so that he'll be comfortable, but he will be productive for the Lord as he stands and lives in God's presence, not so for the wicked one. He will not stand, he will be driven away like the chaff, he will almost in a sense be evaporated before the presence of the Lord. I'm not teaching annihilationism, just an example here. He'll be driven away from before the presence of the Lord. He will not stand before the judgment seat. He will have no presence in the congregation of the righteous. He will not stand. In a word, we could say he will be cursed and driven from the Lord. You see, blessing is a big deal. Think of Deuteronomy chapter 28 as the people are about to enter into the promised land. And and Moses, the servant of the Lord, says there are two ways before you. There is life and there is death there is blessing and there is curse. You may either have all the joy of God's presence and favor and sustaining love, or you may have all the anguish of God's hand of judgment and destruction. That's what hangs in the balance. When Israel prays for these boys, O Lord, bless them. Be with them and keep them and establish them and give them every good thing from your character and your presence with them. This is not a throwaway. This is is not some generic catch-all phrase that he uses. Oh, Lord, bless these boys. That's what he's praying for. Not just that they would be happy. Not just that they would grow up and and find nice wives and settle down in some little place with a nice white fence out in front and, and life would go well for them. Oh, Lord, give them the blessing of your presence and your sustaining power. This is a big deal. You can see how important it is as you go through the different ways That Israel calls upon the Lord. Look at them. The the triple invocation there in verse uh, 15 and into 16. It says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. This is part of the blessing. That there is uh, this idea of direction. This picture that he's got here. That they walked before him. This is the picture of an ancient Near Eastern shepherd who would walk behind his sheep. And he would see the ways that they are straying. And he would make sure that they get back on the correct path. This is what the Lord said to Abraham. Chapter 17. Abraham, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And he will be directing his steps and moving him and showing him the way of life before him. And so this is part of the blessing. Oh Lord, bless these boys with your direction and guiding care for them and in their lives. He speaks of the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Obviously, this is shepherding language again, but the the metaphor is a little bit different. The the word there, really, uh, he has been my shepherd, it'd be something more like he has pastured me. If you've got the King James, it says something like he has fed me all my life. He has given provision. Everything that I need comes from him. Not only does he lead into the right paths, but he leads into those things that his people need. You know, domestic sheep are... Uh, incredibly unable to care for themselves, spectacularly unable to care for themselves. And they will stay, if you let them, in the same pasture all the time, eating until the grass is gone and the earth is parched. And so the shepherd moves them from field to field to go and to receive what they need. And he's praying for these boys like wandering sheep that the shepherd would lead them to what is good for them. Maybe not always what they want, but what is best for them, and the Lord would provide. So there's, there's direction, there's provision, and then this idea, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Now it's clear that he is equating the angel with God himself there, with Yahweh. He's, he has in mind God's personal presence with his people. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. It speaks of the angel of the Lord. Sometimes it speaks of angels, messengers that go, But it sometimes speaks of the angel of the Lord, God's personal presence with his people. And the angel of the Lord who kept Jacob from falling into harm at the hand of Laban. And the angel of the Lord who saved the Israelites from the press of the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. And the angel of the Lord who encamps around his people to deliver them. Who is this? This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. We know him as the second person of the Trinity. The pre-existent, all glorious Son who became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, who came as the only redeemer of God's elect. This is his prayer that the Lord would redeem these boys from all evil. He would deliver them and direct them and sustain them and provide for them. This is what Isaac, I'm sorry, Israel is calling uh, upon for these boys. This is the blessing that he's praying for. And would that your children would hear you praying prayers like this for them. You wouldn't be afraid that, that it would feel like a cop-out when you pray for God's blessing, that you can't think of anything better, that, that they would do well in school, or they would get good jobs, that they would advance in the world. Would that the children in your Sunday school class would hear you praying for God's blessing of deliverance and direction and, su- and sustenance for them. Would that younger brothers and sisters in Christ would have an older brother and sister, someone who's mentoring them and they hear them praying for them in this way that all of our good can be found as the Lord abides with His people and leads them, as He joins them to Himself through Jesus Christ, His Son. Would that prayer like this would be part of the legacy that you leave behind. Now, Israel has spoken of God's mercy. He's prayed for God's blessing. And finally, we see Israel proclaiming God's promises. This is the third point. How do we leave a legacy? We proclaim God's promises. For Israel, it happens at the end of the chapter. He is giving Joseph another inheritance, an extra on top of the double portion he's just given to his sons, Uh, and he gives him something even more important than that, more than this extra piece of land. He gives him the promise, God will be with you, Joseph. God will be with you, and he will bring you again into the land of your fathers. God will make sure that all these things come to fulfillment. You know, one of the interesting things that you find about Israel as you read these 25 chapters of his life is he always seems to be waxing and waning in his relationship to the Lord. He's always hot and cold. He's always sometimes falling into fear, and sometimes he is in faith. And that's a helpful uh, thing for us to see, I think. Because over these 25 chapters that Genesis focuses on Israel, he seems incredibly human. And his life is always rising and falling with his emotions and changing with his circumstances like so many of us find ourselves doing. And we feel that sometimes that we are firm in our faith and then something happens that we didn't expect and we wonder if we have any faith at all. And yet the Lord is faithful to Israel and he leads him and he draws him. But throughout it all, he he plays so many different roles. Israel has so many different hats that he puts on. Sometimes he's the schemer. Sometimes he's the victim. Sometimes Israel is a warm and affectionate father, and, and Joseph seems to be killed, and he mourns, and he weeps. Other times, he is cold and dispassionate, and his daughter Dinah is molested, and he seems to turn the other cheek. And we can't put our finger on Israel, and he seems so hot and cold in a sense, and he seems so much like us. And in some way, in some capacity, he is a person that we can relate to. And yet as he comes closer to the hour of his death, we see someone who is no longer hot and cold, no no longer in fear and faith, but he becomes more and more rigid, less and less flexible. That sometimes happens when you get older. You, You get older and you get set in your ways, and it's, Harder to change, and it's, it's more difficult to do different things. And that seems to be happening for Israel, but it's not a sign that he's old and crotchety. It's a sign that the Lord is showing him his faithfulness. He's being more and more convinced. He is growing in sanctification, we would probably call it, from our New Testament standpoint. There's a progress in, in what the Lord is doing in him. The Lord is giving him spiritual backbone. Now consider uh, this promise that he gives to Joseph. It has two parts, really. He says, God will be with you, and God will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Now, it's strange that this man, who was hot and cold, should declare these words to his son, Joseph. No fewer than five times in the course of these 25 chapters, God has said something to this effect to him. It's basically the message that came from his father when he went off to sojourn with Laban and Paddan Aram in chapter 28. It's basically the message that God gave to him in that uh, that vision at Bethel when he appeared to him in a dream and he said, I will be with you and I will bring you back to this land. It's basically the message that the Lord uh, gave when he called Jacob to return from Paddan Aram. You can find that in chapter 31. Basically the message God gave him when he appeared again at Bethel in 35. It's basically the message that the Lord has just given him before he draws him down into Egypt. This is what he says in chapter 46, uh, verses 3 and 4. The Lord said to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down in Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go with you, and I will bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So here we see this man who needed to have this truth drilled into his mind and his heart over and over and over again. And yet, toward the end of his life, he can finally say, you know, I'm starting to get it. And Joseph, don't worry what happens in the future because I have this promise and I I have conviction about this promise and I have seen that the Lord is faithful to these things and you need to know, Joseph, with all conviction that the Lord will be with you and he will bring you back up. You almost wonder if Israel had any of those normal human hesitations. This younger generation, they they don't want to hear what I have to say. They have a different way of doing things, and they'll probably just think that I'm being old-fashioned, and you know, if you stand on conviction, that's not what people want to hear nowadays, and, and, and the, uh, the opinion is shifting. You can't just stand and declare that some things are true, that that's a propositional truth, and in, in postmodern culture, we don't want to hear propositional truths, but Israel doesn't care about that stuff. He says, Joseph, I've learned this through my years. And this is the legacy that he passes on to his son. There are some things that God has declared that you can take to the bank that are absolutely sure. The word of promise that the Lord has given, and he says to Joseph, you need to know that God will be with you, and God will bring you back to himself. And he proclaims God's promises to him. Now, if this is the legacy you're going to be passing on, you may not pass on the same promise. You might not talk about a land in Canaan. You may not talk about a a particular parcel of land that you would give or or some promise like that, but there are still promises the Lord has given that another generation needs to know from those who have gone before, who have experienced and who have seen that the Lord is actually sure and will actually keep his word in these things. There is another generation that needs to hear from those who are older. This sort of conviction is in short supply in our culture. We need people to stand up and say, I have seen this, I have heard this from the Lord, and I have learned that it is true, and and maybe there are different promises. There are lots to choose from. That Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. It's true. You can have conviction about that, and you can pass that on to another generation, because the Lord has promised it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there is a generation of people saying, I'm not even sure if sin is a a problem or if I need to be cleansed. And you can stand in conviction and say, this is what the Lord has said. And you need to hear this and you need to know this. Don't be afraid of being thought old-fashioned, crotchety any of the other uh, synonyms we could put in there, there are promises the Lord has given, and you can pass those on. That if you seek the Lord, you will find him if you seek him with all of your heart. This is one of the ways that we leave a godly legacy, that we point past ourselves, we proclaim God's promises, we pray for his blessing, and we speak much of his mercy and not of ourselves. Won't you join me as we pray? Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us the conviction of Israel. And in the twists and the turns of our lives, you would be working in us spiritual backbone and conviction to see and to believe all the things that you have spoken of yourself. That you would cause us to trust in the Lord whom you have sent and apart from whom there is no uh, hope of salvation, the only Lord, the only name under heaven by which men may be saved. Make us firm and resolute. May that be our legacy, not that we were nice people or we were kind to one another, but that we were people who were drawn into your mercy and we spoke with conviction about the promises that you have given to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.